Edward Allen Williams and Edward Miller. Yeah, there's been many, many, many opportunities to tell that story with each new person that gets killed. This is Adam Clark. You're listening to And Thereby Hangs a Tale. Who do we have on the horn this month? Hello, this is Bill Dunphy. Bill Dunphy's a retired journalist. He wrote for the Hamilton Spectator and the Toronto Sun. His subjects? Violence and crime. I covered cults. I covered bikers. I covered organized crime. And then the majority of the 90s, probably for five years, I specialized in hate groups and the white supremacists. Bill's tale begins in 1988. I was 32. He was segueing from work at a monthly community newspaper. I'd been at the paper for seven or eight years. I had gotten into journalism out of university. I was at a, a pivot point in my career. To working for the Toronto Sun as a columnist and copy editor. Where I was going to be doing one column a week and spending four days a week on the desk as a copy editor because I'd never worked in daily journalism. Every single day I had to write a column. The only restrictions they put on me was they're not, you're not allowed to do think pieces. It's not about your opinion as such. And you can't plan any of them. So what does that mean? You can't <laughs> so the idea was that every single day I go out into the city and find a story and write about it. So that was the brief of the column. Not politics, not crime, not any particular angle. It is storytelling. And I had to go out and do it every day, starting from nothing. Now's as good a time as any to offer a content warning. Bill's tale is about violence and death, among other things. If you think you'd rather not hear about that, no hard feelings, but this episode's not for you. I was a brand new columnist. I'd probably filed two columns for the paper at that point. I was headed in for a shift, an evening shift of copy editing. I stopped for lunch in a, in a restaurant at Bloor and Dundas Street West. One o'clock in the afternoon, I went to the restaurant to get a club sandwich, aiming to be in at work by four. So I have a relaxing couple of hours before work. I'm going to have my lunch at the restaurant and then hop on the subway, which is underneath, and, and head, head down to the sun. So I was just sitting, I put in my order, I was reading a novel and smoking a cigarette because that was allowed back then. You know, when you're by yourself and in a public place, you kind of listen in. I do. And I had noticed the guy, a guy, so this was a, a little restaurant called, I think it was called the Crosstown. It was in the Crossways Mall, run by a pair of Greek brothers. So it's the kind of you know, family food restaurant that you imagine. And it has a little bar at one end with five seats. And there was a guy sitting at that bar who just caught my ear because he was talking about New York State, upstate New York, which is where my family, my mother is from and lots of family. The man at the bar is Edward Allen Williams. So it caught my ear and I'm kind of half paying attention to him as he told the story about, basically it was about stiffing a waitress for a tip. And he was telling the story to the bartender. 
so I mean, I, I was kind of amused by that because he was very proud of the way he subtracted the tip back from the waitress because he didn't like her attitude. And I thought that was just a strange, a strange way to win friends on a wintry afternoon. But again, only half paying attention and paying attention to my book. And and then it happened. Edward Miller. The first thing I noticed was a movement out of the corner of my right eye that was, it was just too fast. And it triggered instincts and reactions in me that outpaced my mind. <laughs> um, I have a very verbal and analytical approach to the world. It was a kind of a split moment where my body was doing things while my brain was scrambling to understand and make sense of it. So that first rush of movement from my right alarmed my body greatly, but my brain still didn't understand what was going on. The movement was a man who'd been sitting by himself somewhere off to my right getting up from the table and rushing towards the the speaker, this guy who was telling the story. He moved towards the, the storyteller, put his arm around his shoulder, and then started to... I couldn't make sense of it. He was doing something to the guy, grabbing him maybe, or pulling. It looked a little like roughhousing. So part of my brain was going, oh, I didn't think it was this kind of a place, you know, where drunks wrestle in the... <laughs> on the carpet. But my body was already in full on alarm mode. I I was already standing up. I'd thrown the chair back, stepped around the table and was moving towards them. While my conscious brain was still thinking that there's nothing really wrong. It's a, it's a panic response, I guess. So I'm moving, I'm moving towards them. And then the full effect of that hit, you get this adrenaline rush, which I guess had already hit me, which is why I was up and moving. But your vision, you get this tunnel vision. Your vision just comes crashing down. And, and it's like you're looking through the wrong end of a telescope. And you only have your, the center of your vision. And it's jerky and moving around. Sound gets really odd. And you have trouble hearing some things, but you hear other things as though they've been slowed down. Time slowed down. And this is all in, in, you know, one and a half to two seconds. By this point, the two men, the, the, the fellow who was grabbing, had pulled the other man right off his stool, the bar stool, and flung him onto the floor. And at this point, my conscious brain was beginning to catch up, still trying to make sense, but feeling the alarm and the panic. It's a bit of an insight into the way the, the brain works. There were sounds there's probably was yelling or screaming i i have no memory of it there was a sound that kind of stood out in all of this and it was a it was a strange thing it was it was the sound so when when that adrenaline rush kicks in it does affect your sense of sound so there must have been screaming and yelling i i don't remember it but i did hear very clearly a sound that I would reproduce as skinitch, which sounds crazy because what my brain did with that sound, or at least it heard it manufactured. I have no idea if it manufactured the sound or what, but 
as I was coming close and I could see he was working at the man's chest and neck in some way on the ground, I heard that skinitch sound and my mind instantly linked it to a cartoon by Don Martin, a mad magazine cartoonist. And it was a sound effect made when one of his hapless characters got a fork stuck up under his chin. And that flashed through my mind. Again, it was the, the conscious brain struggling to make sense of what was going on. But it wasn't a fork. It, it, it was a knife, as it turned out. I didn't understand that yet. By this point, I'm on top of them. One of the man's on the floor. The other one is half down, crouching over him and, and just working in a way that is like his arms are moving and there's something, it's just, I'm starting to get horrified now. I still don't know what's going on, but I know I have to stop it. So I, I grab one shoulder with one hand and I reach down and grab that hand that was doing something and yanked it back, trying to pull him off. He kind of shook me off and growled, sounded like an inhuman growl. It sounded animal-like, but I kept at it. I reached further down to grab it and as I grabbed, I had this other very, very strange sensation. I reached past his hand and grabbed the, the actual blade of the knife. And he yanked it up as I was trying to yank. And I could feel the blade cutting into my finger, sliding through my flesh. It wasn't painful. It was, I think, so sharp that it didn't trigger off that, but it it's a feeling I won't ever forget. It was a, an intense feeling of wrongness. I mean, that microsecond marked me in ways that would come back again and again. As he did that, and as my hand slid along the blade, he then gave another growl and, and really worked and threw me off. And I let go in, in, in horror and realization and stepped back. And then finally, my conscious brain caught up and said, he has a knife. He's killing this man. And he wants to kill you. I stepped back. And at that point, I, I started giving voice and I started yelling, call 911. What the panic does to your vision and faculties, it, it can be astonishing. I mean, I, it was like looking through the end of a, the wrong end of a binoculars and imagine trying to find a phone on a wall. And I, I could not do it. This was before cell phones. This was 1988. I'm looking around, I'm looking behind the bar and I'm, I'm yelling, call 911, someone call 911. I can't see anything. I figured, oh, there's got to be one in the kitchen. And turn and run and burst through the doors and again yell, call 911 and look, I can't see a phone. There could have been 20 phones and I don't think I would have seen them. During all of this time, the bartender, who was one of the brothers and owners, had finally come out from around the bar. And as I'm coming out of the kitchen, I yelled at him. He ignored me, picked up a chair and then went, went at, at the, the man with the knife. As that was happening, I remembered right outside the doors of the restaurant. It's in an interior mall. Uh, there was a bank of public phone booths directly opposite them, nine feet away. So I, I burst out through there, went to the phone booth, put in a quarter, called 911, and they hung up on me. <laughs> How? I lost my <laughs> No idea. They answered, and then we got disconnected. So I curse. I had another quarter, luckily. I put it 
back in, actually probably returned the quarter now that I think about it, called it again and got through again. And I'm explaining there's a, you know, where I am. And I, I try to be really concise. You know, my name's Bill Dunphy. I'm at the Crosstown Mall, Dundas West and Bloor Street inside. There's a man with a knife. He's attacked someone. We need an ambulance. We need police. And I'm going through all of that. They're calming me down and they're asking for a description of the man. And as I'm giving that description, I hear more commotion from inside the restaurant, which is nine feet in front of me at the entrance. And I hear the killer yelling something. And then he steps into view and he's yelling back into the restaurant, you'd better not squeal or I'll kill you. And this is as I'm describing him to the police. He had the knife in his hand. His shirt was all bloody. There was blood on the knife and his hand was bloody. And as he finished saying that he'd kill anyone who talked to the police, he turned and looked straight at me as he tucked the knife into his belt. At that moment, I started being very scared for myself. But then when he looked at me, I've never seen a person in so much torment. The things that were going on inside his head had transformed him into this. And he was tortured. As I watched, he was he was facing some kind of de demonic thing. His face was just, it looked like it was roiling with the muscles jumping. And I'm sure that's me putting it onto him. But I changed from fear to something else. And I don't know what it was. Not exactly pity, but it, I understood something. I, I don't know what it was. And he looked, he looked right at me and kind of shrugged and kept looking around and then went out the mall and towards the exit that goes out to the street. I told the police that he'd just come out and walked by me and where he was going and then tried to get them off the phone so I could go out and find out where he was going and what he was doing. I frankly imagined that he would just simply start stabbing everyone he saw. What I saw inside of him made me fear that that was real. So I hung up on 911 and ran outside and then scanned the street as I stepped out trying to find him. I thought I saw disturbances with like people acting strange and turning and looking. So I followed that. It was leading me directly across to a subway station. I ran down into the subway station. I yelled at the conductor or the collector rather, trying to describe the man and asking if he'd seen him. And I said, you know, he had blood and, and they, they'd seen nothing. They knew nothing. And I came running out of there and looked around, I could see nothing. So I, I went back in, back into the restaurant. And at that point, police were beginning to arrive and ambulance arrived. I mean, he, they, they tried hard to save the man who was been attacked, uh, but he bled out right there on the floor. I mean, I don't know when they formally pronounced him dead, but he never had much chance at all. That is Edward. Alan Williams. He called himself Al. He was a Roma and a Carney in a family of Carneys. I was being interviewed by a patrol officer who, frankly, it looked like it was his first major scene as well. He was young. 
and may even have been younger than me. Um, and he seemed incompetent. <laughs> I, 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 and I, I should qualify that, and I will. But he didn't seem to know a lot of what questions needed to be asked, and he was writing them down and trying hard to figure out the next thing to ask. And uh, one of the EMS people came up to me and said, you know, hey, we've got to look at that hand of yours. The patrol officer tried to intervene, said, listen, I just need to get some details here. And the medic, the EMS guy just said, yeah, if you need to talk to him, you can follow us to the hospital if that's where he wants to go. And he just kind of pushed the cop away and started <laughs> tending me. So I had that image of that cop as this green, inexperienced, not very effective guy. We were probably on site then for another hour. At one point, he also came up to me and gave me information on, on victim support and urged me to take advantage of it in a way that was really touching and, and very human. I remember the homicide cop, when they, they arrived, because they always come later on the scene, uh, when he arrived coming up to me and going, so I've got a, uh, I've got a reporter as one of my eyewitnesses, just my luck. Let me guess, who did you call first, 911 or the city desk? What the fuck? <laughs> Shit. So, <clears throat> very different demeanor than the other cop. <laughs> but it's, you know what it was? It was actually, in terms of police and media relations, it was, he was treating me as a kind of an equal by making making fun of it, right? And he was acknowledging that rivalry and the fact that we're often trying to get things they don't want to tell us. So he was acknowledging all of that. And when I told him it was 911 that I called first, I did call the desk after. <laughs> um, you know, he, he, he kind of laughed and we went on. It, that's, just, that's just a thing. I, I, I kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> they they seized my shirt for evidence because it had blood on it, lots of blood on it. And that was mine and the victims, and they were hoping maybe the the assailants. And one of the Greek brothers gave me his sweater, which was this he was smaller than me, so it was a ill-fitting blue cashmere sweater that with nothing on underneath it made me look very unusual. But he was he was so nice, Tom. He so he gave, literally he gave me the sweater off his back, um, and then uh, also gave me two big roast beef sandwiches. Like just that, food will help. You know, it's just here. You eat, you'll be better. And it it was touching, and they were good sandwiches. <laughs> that day, so I didn't go to work. <laughs> I mean, I did actually physically go to work, but I did not work. So I went to the office. At that point, he was on the loose, on the run. We didn't know where he was. We didn't know what it was about. Uh, and I was pretty sh shaken up. Um, so I didn't write anything. I gave an interview on the scene to uh, the first reporter they sent out. And then I sat down and talked with uh, one of the crime reporters at the office. And he interviewed me there. And their first story, they didn't even identify me because they didn't know what they were dealing with. And they just thought that it would be safer not to. I think probably my editor was disappointed that I wasn't going to write the first person piece right then and there, but fuck it. <laughs> um, 
So I went home and uh, got a call from the desk, the, 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 the news desk, probably the crime desk, the police desk. Uh, and he was arrested that night. They found him on the Queen Street car uh, out when it passes near High Park on the lakeshore when it's way out there. And he still had the knife, still dressed in the same clothes. And he, he was having a psychotic break. He was scaring people. He wasn't directly threatening people initially, but he was certainly scaring them. So at one point on that, on a lonely stretch of Lakeshore Road, the streetcar driver just stopped the streetcar. He had radioed for police and then stopped the streetcar when they were ready. And the police then boarded the streetcar full of passengers with this one disturbed man with a knife. His name was Edward Miller. Uh, They got the passengers off. So there's just him left on the streetcar with a knife, talking to himself, pacing back and forth, threatening to kill the police and demanding that they kill him. And he was saying things like, I, you don't know what I did. I butchered a man today is what he told them. This was 1988. And unlike a lot of similar events since then, they didn't kill him. Let's put a pin in that. We'll be revisiting how cops handle these situations then and now a a little later in this episode. They contained him in the streetcar. They talked to him to try to calm him down. And as a delaying tactic while they waited for the emergency task force. So they arrived. They tried to negotiate with him and talk him off. He was demanding that they kill him. And he was talking about the mafia and he was claiming he was a hitman from the mafia uh, that he'd killed and he, would, he wasn't going to live the night and they had to kill him because he was going to take some of them with him. They didn't kill him. They used tear gas and stormed it and brought him in alive. So I, I learned that that night after he was arrested. They called and told me that, that he'd been taken into custody. And so the next day, that day I went in and I wrote a first person account for the, for the paper of it. A couple of nights later, he hung himself in the cell and died. He was in the Don jail. And despite his obvious, the obvious psychotic break he'd been through, despite his declarations that he he wanted to die, was going to die, they had to kill him. He wasn't put on a suicide watch. He wasn't transferred to the units they have for the mentally ill and was left in the general population. I cried at home alone when I got a a call again from the desk to say that he committed suicide. And um, that was the first time I actually cried about it. I I remember sitting there in my room, literally, the, the cut was still bothering me and, you know, the bandage on and so on. I just ripped the thing off. And just let it, it reopened the cut and it bled. And I just sort of sat there and cried and let this thing bleed while I tried to figure out and understand why he'd been allowed to die. I was not allowed to cover the inquest because I was going to be a witness at the inquest. But I was able to, they let me attend it fully. So after I testified, I was there every day. What reason did they have to leave Edward Miller alone in a cell? Once they understood 
his condition, they didn't want to move him because they were worried that the move itself, given his condition, would upset too many of the inmates and cause too much of a problem. So they just removed his cellmate and and bunked his cellmate elsewhere and left him in there alone. And I mean, he was exhibiting all those all that time. He was exhibiting that behavior. At the inquest, they entered into evidence the notes from the the correctional officers at the Don Jail, indicating they checked on him at two thirty, at three o five, at three twenty five, at four o seven, like a, about seven or eight checks through the night, until when they went to bring him his breakfast and they found him hanging and dead. Rigor mortis had already started to set in when they found him, yet all of their observation notes indicated that he was alive and sleeping that whole time. <sighs> Even though the, the medical evidence was very clear that he died probably at one, one to two to three in the morning, as late as three, he was found at seven in the morning and they were still signing him off as perfectly alive and sleeping. They explained that away by saying that the glass window in the doors doesn't allow them a good enough view of the room to see it. They urged the jury to bring recommendations to, to, to improve the types of windows in these jail cell doors instead of improving the corrections officers. I'd covered two inquests before this, and I heard the prison guard lawyer talking in the hallway to a ministry lawyer uh, in the inquest, and he was saying, yeah, for us, it's not a very tough one. This is going to be a pretty easy inquest. We've got a, we've got agreements on a couple of the recommendations because you can't let the jury think of things by themselves. And he laughed. And he was absolutely right. The jury just produced verdicts that ignored their failure to take care of him once they'd successfully arrested him. And that, that really marked me as a reporter knowing the circumstances and seeing how the system failed to even acknowledge the problem they had in front of them really bothered me. And that affected all of my, all of my work and made me understand as a reporter, just how much we had to nip at the heels of these institutions to keep them, to keep them honest and doing their job. It was a distressing, distressing time. The failure to get at important issues was something that became evident throughout the inquest in terms of what questions got asked and which lines of inquiry got pursued. So that was a growing realization, like hearing that lawyer make that comment and understanding that the lawyers, the institutional lawyers, to an extent, would trade recommendations and, and figure out, can we all get something we can agree on? so that we don't let the jury just come up with whatever wild idea ordinary people come up with. That's what they're afraid of. That I, I hadn't known, but I saw that in action. So that was, that was eye-opening in that sense. Why was it so easy for them at the inquest to plow over the fact that Edward Miller had hung himself? Because most people don't understand the law, don't understand inquests, so the jury is clay in the hands of the coroner um, to a large extent. 
And what I've learned is that our coroner's courts or our system, it's the bureaucracy looking at itself. So they make decisions on when to hold inquests and what to focus on, partly making calculations on what they believe is achievable so that they then control the process. It's, it's not a true adversarial process like the criminal courts. So the investigation, once there's deaths for which there's no criminal investigation, so if a murderer kills someone, and then kills themselves. The police will investigate, but it's under the it's under the direction of the coroner. So it's not being investigated like a criminal offense. It's being get investigated for the purposes of the coroner and uh, the relevant acts to satisfy the public about how this death happened and what can be done to prevent it. So the coroner directs the investigation. The crown is the coroner's counsel. He's not an independent prosecutor. So there's no independence between uh, the coroner, the people who lead the evidence, the people who do the investigation. They're all under the direction of the coroner. The only other players at the table are interested parties can hire lawyers who can gain standing and get to ask questions of the witness and have limited ability to lead their own evidence. So you have a system that is designed to be a watch on the system, but it's run by the system. And unless those people are motivated strongly, um, you're not going to get results that you couldn't get by having a round table with department heads. Um, the exception is if the victim has counsel there, can afford to have counsel or have counsel that's doing it pro bono and is aggressive to, to really dig out the facts um, and to point to solutions that the bureaucracy might not like, but that ordinary citizens would demand. I'm sorry, it's a lecture about the coroner's courts, but it's, I mean, when we look at the, I mean, we just had this happen in Hamilton three days ago, McDougal, young man, 19 year old shot to death because he had a knife. Well, the story today shows that he was the one who called police because he was feeling unsafe. He called 911 twice to ask them to come and get him because he was feeling unsafe. And they came and killed him. So that's the cost of these inquests failing. The, the rate at which that is happening is, I find, very alarming. Coroner's courts, they have focused in the last few years on these incidents. But it's really the criminal courts that are making change happen there with the Sami Yatim uh, charges and so on. Sami Yatim was another uh, a mentally disturbed young man on a streetcar. Only they kill them now. They don't. They don't take them safely. So he was shot nine times by that that one officer, uh, who got criminally charged and convicted, which is very rare. But it is, it is forcing police and and 
all of us, I mean, to look at how we deal with that and we're not dealing with it well yet. We can do a way better job of protecting against those very rare instances when mentally ill people get violent. It's not perfect. It's far from perfect because we don't understand those triggers very well and we don't have good systems for managing people. In Edward Miller's case, he had a 15 year, he's 40 years old. So he had a, yeah, he had a 15 year history of, he'd been diagnosed variously schizophrenic and suffering from acute hallucinogenesis, alcoholic hallucinogenesis, um, which is psychotic breaks brought about by drinking. And his history of those 15 years was a history of him being on his medication, working, falling off the wagon with alcohol, having psychotic episodes, and he would check himself in to the emergency department of, of, of hospitals and mental uh, at St. Joe's in Toronto. He would check himself in because he felt unsafe. And in there, he would get safe, he'd get better, he'd get back on his medication, he'd be back on the street. And he'd do well for a time. And then he would go off. And then he would... It was a repeated pattern of that. And the system doesn't handle that terribly well. Uh, the psychiatrist who testified in that case said that he, he, was he was no more dangerous on the morning that he killed Edward Allen Williams than he was on any other day until he did it. So we're not great at stopping those. Uh, but if he had had community support and family support, the support needed then is to keep him off alcohol. That's a doable thing. It's the ones who don't get, don't have the community and, and, and emotional, personal networks and support that fall through the cracks, as we like to say. But it's it's really, they're ignored by everyone. And that's what the inquest should be. That's That's a place we can fix things. And once he's arrested and in the system, for God's sakes, they should be safe then. And if they're mentally ill and call for help, they shouldn't be killed, you know? And you've seen it repeatedly since. Over and over, over and over and over. I've covered at least four inquests like that since then. So when I, I would come across stories that had elements of that, I was alive to them in a ways that maybe another reporter wasn't. So I would, I would pursue those differently. I, I don't know if it's true that they're killing more now than they used to. I haven't done that kind of study. And, and the statistics are not kept and maintained well to make that easy. When I have done it, so I've looked in Hamilton, I've looked at from 2000 on, I did a study looking at every single police involved shooting, whether it was a death or not, because it can be a death anytime they try. The results were remarkable. The, the vast majority of the cases involved people who were, I'll say, emotionally disturbed. So without applying a medical diagnosis, because I'm based on news reports and so on, I'm not in a position to diagnose someone. But it was well over half, and maybe as much as 70%, I'm going on memory, so <laughs> sorry about the numbers, were emotionally disturbed people. So at the very least, they are not doing their job right. Like that's a repeated they're able to de-escalate and deal with other kinds of violent situations. On these ones, they're failing. It's about their training. And they are trained. I think the more professional they've made their, what they call, use of force training, the more professional they've made it, the more dangerous it is. 
It's protecting police officers at the expense of the mentally ill because the mentally ill will not respond to the cues that they use to avoid violence. The, 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 the officer presence, the commanding voice, the shouts, the intimidation, they will not respond to those the way a rational person, I'm making air quotes, would. With an unresponsive, violent person, their training is to get control. That's where their safety is the most guaranteed, and it's not. They're risking their lives. And the way to do that is to kill. You shoot until the threat is eliminated, is what they're trained, which means dead. That training is the problem. And that's an institutional problem, which institutions can fix. And the courts have been, the coroner's courts and the criminal courts have just been very, very slow to deal with this because of the power of the police unions and police and the respect that we hold them. There's a fair number of police who will tell you the same thing, yes. right? Um, <laughs> no, I understand. But no, but I just want to be clear about that. This isn't a condemnation of any individual officer. So, I didn't say it was. Yeah. Although there are a few I would love and be happy to condemn. Um, it, it's a condemnation. It's a failure of the system we've created. Um, and we've got to put aside the defensive mechanisms enough to say the data is really clear. You're not shooting many people, but you're shooting and killing mentally ill people with alarming regularity in a, in, and disproportionately. So that's a problem you have to fix. And, and the fix is, unfortunately, changes to their training. Okay, that's doable, but changes to their culture. And that's a lot harder. That takes more time. It's tougher to measure. It's difficult to, to make happen. You know, I, I spoke to a mother of someone who was shot but not killed by police, a young man again. And she talked about her terror as she lived with him and he was having his, his difficulties. Her terror about calling the police because he's violent. He's going to hurt himself or he's going to hurt somebody else. You have to intervene. But when you call the police, you know there's a chance they're going to kill him. And that is such a god-awful, no one should be put in a position of making that choice. I appreciate the wider context you're giving to this, Bill, but let's go back to you. How did you process the murder of Edward Allen Williams and then Edward Miller cutting your hand in those immediate days and weeks after all of that happened? I wrote about this incident between then and the inquest. I probably wrote about it four times, which is a lot for, at that point, I was still a weekly columnist, but it was because I was processing it. I was figuring it out, like trying to put everything in boxes that, that made sense to me, but it doesn't. The, 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 the after effects have nothing to do with, with the logic and understanding and the ability to analyze it and assign blame to you know the corrections people or the police or whatever it was. The emotions are just this thing that just live. So for weeks, a sudden movement would send me into send me into instant panic. Taking the subway was difficult because there's lots of people moving in ways that, you know, I would put my back against the wall on, on the subway. And that lasted for some time, it, I was living with post-traumatic stress. 
it wasn't post-traumatic stress disorder because I was able to integrate it. Five years later, it doesn't come crashing back to take over my life in some ways. The intensity of those moments, I can relive them. For a while, I mean, for a couple of years, they would sneak up on me and just appear in response to something that was similar or that triggered it. But like that moment of feeling the knife cut into my hand, the moment when I looked at this man's face and switched from fear to something different, those moments I could slip back into later. So at first it was without volition. Years later, it was I could sort of slide myself into it and, and feel the intensity of it. But it was probably several years before before I was completely at ease with what had happened. It does it does mark you. Given what he put you through, the fact that he took the life of Edward Allen Williams, the lingering post-traumatic stress, were you ever angry at Edward Miller? Not at all. Because of that moment in the, as he left, what I saw in his face, it wasn't anger at all. I don't want to say I understood him because I don't and didn't, but I could see that it, I mean, I could see where the notion of possession comes from, where the notion of someone being out of their mind when we say out of their mind, we think that means big, big and crazy, uh, making no sense and doing things that make no sense and so on. So it wasn't that. This was someone who was being tormented by demons. Like he, he was, he was, he was scared or way scareder than I was. Um, and I went from fear of him to fear for him, I guess. As a reporter, I came on similar scenes. I've probably done it dozens of times, uh, whether or not they were actual murders, but where someone has acted violently towards other people in ways that have just destroyed or damaged or their lives. And I looked at them very differently, always because of it. It changed the way I worked, the way I thought. Anger wasn't part of it. I appreciate you telling this story. I know you've been reluctant to share it publicly. The stories strength comes from its horror. And while the horror of the attack is real, it's hard to get people to look at the real horror. And that to me is, is the mental illness that's allowed to grow to the point that it becomes that. And our inability as a society to figure out how to handle that better. It just, it burns me up. It burns me up. And for that reason, I, I haven't I don't tell this story very often just because yeah, people aren't going to hear the real story. They're not going to hear the message. They're going to, you know, it was like during the inquest, I, I was thanked by the coroner and, and the juror, the jury in their recommendations. The first things they did they, was to thank me from the courage I displayed in the incident. The story can be told with that lens if I want to. Right. I mean, I, you can tell it as that kind of a story, a failed intervention by a brave bystander. But it's not the story in any way. I mean, the truth is most of my actions were instinctual. And when I understood the danger, I backed away. So it's, it's another reason I don't tell that story a lot is, is because... People 
can get that kind of, wow, that's a horrible story. And boy, that was exciting. And you were right in the middle of it and you did so well or whatever. But that's not what the story's about at all. Quinn McDougall, Sammy Yatim, Michael Elegant. These are a handful of names of men who had a mental episode, for lack of a better term, and were murdered by police in Ontario. The deaths of these people, as frightening as their actions may have been, represent a gross misuse of lethal force by police. Edward Allen Williams lost his life for nothing more than telling a bad story at a bar. In fact, that might not have triggered his murderer at all. Williams might have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Edward Miller might have killed anyone who was unfortunate enough to encounter him after he'd relapsed into drink. I don't want Edward Allen Williams to be overshadowed, but the issue of how we handle the mentally ill needs to be solved. There's got to be a better solution than just straight up killing them. When people like Edward Miller get proper treatment, we don't see murders like that of Edward Allen Williams. If police are forced to rethink the way they handle the mentally ill, well, then we won't be seeing deaths like that of Edward Miller or the murders of Quinn McDougall, Sammy Yatim, Michael Elligan, and others. Thanks again to Bill Dunphy for telling me his story. I'm Adam Clark. Thanks for listening. Thereby Hangs a Tale is a production of Megaphonic FM. We make podcasts, and podcasts are the friends who live in your ears.